following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. This session is on listening to and ministering to people struggling with sexual issues. And hopefully, as we get get going, you're going to see why I, I, in certain settings, like talking about sexual issues actually as a whole instead of as kind of diverse, specific ones. Um, but the first thing we need to do, and I think it helps kind of lend it to this, the first thing we need to do in, in identifying sexual issues and identifying sexual sin is make clear that we know what's, what godly sex is. Right? What is God's design for sexuality? What, what, what is God's design for sex? And it seems like it would be a very obvious thing, right? Like, sex is a big part of life. It would be obvious that we know and understand what it's for. Um, but maybe I'm just denser than everyone else, and that's a very real possibility. But I was—I had been through seminary and married five years, and I still didn't know what sex was for. I mean, I, I knew, like, what it was for. <laughs> But as far as, like, from a theological perspective, why did God create this? And something more than it's that cool perk that comes with marriage and sometimes it makes babies. Right? What, like, what's it for? And we see as we, as we read in the, in the pages of Scripture that sex has a number of fundamental purposes. Purposes, and this is why this is so important, purposes without which... That sexual activity cannot be God-glorifying. That's what I mean by fundamental purposes. There are these fundamental purposes of sex. The purposes of sex without which sexual activity cannot be God-glorifying. And here are a a few of them. The the first is that sex is a means of covenantal union. Sex is a means of covenantal union. In, in, the, in, in a marriage covenant, the marriage between a man and a woman, in, in, when they make that covenant, physical intimacy is actually a means of union within that covenant. Something happens. The two become one flesh means more than just physical, but it, sure, it surely does not mean less. Right? Something happens, and, and, and we see evidences, evidence of this in the chemicals that are released in our brains. Right? The chemicals, the bonding chemicals that are released in our brains provide the, the, the fingerprint of God's design on the means of union, the man and woman becoming one flesh. Oxytocin is released in a woman in four things. Childbirth. Nursing, sex, and intimate physical touch. Why? Because of this, how God created us for his bonding. We see this theologically in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul warns that, that, that the men in the church should not be joined together with prostitutes. Why? Because when you do, you become one body with her. Sex that is as casual as sex with a prostitute, something happens. It's a means of union, and God designed it to be a means of covenantal union. A union within the covenant. So sex is designed to be a means of covenantal union. Secondly, it's it's a means of mutual pleasure. We see this throughout Scripture. Song of Songs specifically, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But it's meant to be a positive mutual, mutually pleasurable experience. Thirdly, sex was designed to be an expression of marital love. It's, it's an expression of marital love. David Pallison, in um, a chapter in the, the book Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, writes this. He says, The erotic is meant to be a bright expression of mutual loving kindness. Sex thrives in a context of commitment, safety, trust, affection, giving, closeness, and intimacy and generosity. The erotic flourishes as one normal, everyday expression of genuine love within marriage. And here's what, here's what I mean by love is an expression of marriage. Love is an expression the same way... Do you, you ever like, hear a song? Like, I mean, just a really good song, and it expresses 
thoughts or feelings that if somebody tried to describe them to you just wouldn't capture the same way, right, as that song. Poetry does this. I mean, this is really like all art forms oftentimes are expressions of thoughts or emotions or feelings that you couldn't completely capture if somebody tried to like describe it to you in an encyclopedia, right? Similarly, God created our sexuality to be an expression of marital love. Something that is different, not necessarily greater than, but different than describing your love. We see this in Genesis. We we get this picture, both pre and post fall, of how the nudity of Adam and Eve, it strikes us, right? What is it about it that strikes us? It's the vulnerability, right? The fact that they were naked and not ashamed, conveys a vulnerability, conveys an intimacy that just saying, you know, I'm totally vulnerable with you, doesn't quite capture, right? There's something unique about the expression of love. Song of Songs paints this picture of enjoyment, of, 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 of really, Song of Songs paints it as ecstasy. It's an expression of the enjoyment of marriage. It was designed to be this. And if... Sex was designed to be an expression of the marriage relationship, an expression of marriage. What was, as we learn in Ephesians 5, what is marriage designed to be an expression of? Christ and the church. You see, sex was designed to be an expression of the marital relationship, and the marital relationship was designed to be an expression of the relationship between Christ and the church. Sex was designed by God to be about God, to teach us about God, to teach us about who he is and about aspects of his relationship to his church, not in the but in the ex- what it expresses. And this is why sexual sin is so devastating. Not be- just because you may think something or, or another thing is gross or unnatural. Not just because it's a, a, a breaking of trust. Not just because it affects people emotionally. But at its core... Sexual issues and sexual sin are a big deal because of how they break, how they tear away from the beautiful picture that God created physical sexual intimacy to be. And so... Really, what we can see here, and and, and this actually cuts through. It cuts through so much of the questions of, well, does the Bible talk about that being sin? Well, does the Bible talk about that being sin? Anything that is not this, that is not a means of covenantal union, an expression of the marital relationship, a a, a means of... of, of, um, Mutual pleasure, an expression that, that cannot be actively described as an expression of something as holy as Christ in the church is a sexual problem. It's an issue. In most cases, it's sin. And what, there's two things that need to happen. Number one, this clarifies for us what is sexual sin. And secondly, for some of us, it needs to... To, to clarify for us what is holy. Because oftentimes when we don't think about sex this way, we think of sex as that thing that like God doesn't care about, right? Like, oh, well, I'll, we'll just close the bedroom door and leave you outside, you and the kids, right? Don't come in. And this is just for us. But God says, no, like this is about me. So, if sexual issues are anything that is, does not conform to God's design in that, um, and some of you may say, well, wait, isn't like procreation like a fundamental purpose of sex? Some people may disagree with me. I would say no. I'd say it's a blessing attached to sex. 
Actually, in Genesis, right, God, it says God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. The, 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 the multiplication of children was a blessing. But it's not that thing without which sex cannot be God-glorifying. Right? This would basically call every infertile couple into sin. Right? That's not true. These are the things that, without which sex is, cannot be God-glorifying. And so what are the issues? What are some of the issues that we see that, 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 that flow out of, of, of this in, in, in our culture? Well, number one, probably the, one of the most common, pornography. Right? Pornography is not a means of covenantal union. Right? It's trying to have the pleasure without the design. It's seeking a physical pleasure through, and not only with the person who is viewing it, but in that sense, violating the person who's being viewed. And pornography, I mean, we don't have to talk about it. I mean, you talk about it, well, Heath did. He did a whole workshop on it, right? He wrote a whole, he literally wrote the book on it, um, which is a great book. Heath's book, Finally Free, if you know anyone in your life, if you know anyone in your life who struggles with pornography. If you don't think you know anyone in your life who struggles with pornography, you need to start asking more questions. Um, but it is a great, great resource. Um, pornography is a, is a huge and ever-present issue, especially right now. But what are some of the other issues? That, another is individual masturbation. Because of the mutual love of it, we're not going to get into um, some aspects of this, but individual masturbation, right? Masturbation alone, by yourself, for yourself, is, cannot be qualified as a means of covenantal union, right? It is very, very purely and obviously an act of self-love, right? Not mutual love. But as Feinberg and Feinberg write, social scientists estimate that perhaps as many as 90% of males have masturbated. And while that's higher than women, women are nowhere near exempt. Uh, over 50% of women have. It's a constant and ever-present issue. And oftentimes in the church, this is one of those issues that people are like, well, Bible doesn't say, I mean, I'm not really thinking of anybody. I can do it without lusting. Some of you are laughing like, people actually say that out loud. Right? But this is where an understanding of what God created sex to be clarifies for us. Right? Individual masturbation, it doesn't matter if you're thinking of a tree. It, it's not a means of covenantal union. It's not an expression of love for your spouse. Pornography, individual masturbation, fantasies. Fantasies are a, a, a huge issue and problem in our culture and our world. And unlike pornography, you can't turn the screen off. Fantasies can involve imagined characters, or even more often, they involve real people that one knows in their life. Sexual fantasies are always, inevitably, more erotic or more ideal than real sexual activities because the person in the fantasy can read your mind because they're in your mind, right? And fantasies become just a, a issue that snowballs in so many people's lives. Pornography is a sexual issue, individual masturbation, fantasies, a fourth is fetishes. Some of you may go, what, wait, what? Like, fetishes. A fetish, let me read this here. A fetish is, is, in fetishism, a person becomes sexually fixated on some object other than another human body and attaches great erotic significance to that object. In extreme cases, the person is incapable of becoming aroused and having an orgasm unless the fetish object is present. Typically, the fetish object is closely associated with the body, such as clothing or shoes. Shoes are probably one of the more common fetishes. 
And some people think, oh my gosh, I hear like fetish, like wow, like that's, that's for, that really is like the serious stuff. That's really like the deep end of the pool, right? Like that's like for, man, that's like a far out sexual issue, except for the fact that it's not. It's number one, more common than you think. It's number two, simply an extreme of a continuum that lots of people are on. It's a continuum that starts with a mild preference. A mild preference of something being worn, lingerie, right? Any, any other physical thing being present. It can start with a mild preference, which can grow to a strong preference, which can grow to necessity, right? It needs to be there, which can very easily grow to substitution, right? Now all I need is the object and I don't actually need you, so easier than we think for fetishes to be born similar, being similar sexual issues. Well, we'll get to why we're talking about all these different ones in a, in a minute. But, but another one, a fifth, is homosexual practices, right? Obviously a, a, a timely topic, but... Same-sex attraction is a consistent problem for many men and women in the church, and it's, our culture is only allowing it to get more and more confusing, right? I mean, today it just got even more confusing, but although the reality is here, I don't think it necessarily made anything much more confusing than it was yesterday. But the existence of even desires can oftentimes be devastatingly confusing for followers of Christ who are well aware of what Scripture teaches about homosexual practices. And just because homosexuality is a sin doesn't necessarily mean that the temptation towards that sin was an identifiable choice, just like a lot of our temptations most who struggle with same-sex attraction will feel that they were far more passive in the temptation than active, but it still is not even in a, even in a state-sponsored covenantal union is not a covenantal union before God. It cannot be a means of covenantal union. It cannot be an expression of marital love. Sixthly is obviously adultery. Adultery is a sexual issue. It is taking this context and, and the, desire, the, the design for our sexuality and putting it on something else. Or premarital sex. Right? It can't be a means of covenantal union because you haven't made a covenant. Or just lust, as Jesus talks about. Right? Just lust in and of itself is, is you're committing adultery in your mind. Not to mention, maybe even sin isn't even involved, but there could be other sexual issues exist like, like, like impotence for all sorts of different reasons. And so we see that there are all these different sexual issues, some of which we can relate to and say, I understand how somebody could struggle with that. But others, we think, I don't even see, understand how anybody could ever struggle with that. Right? Some of which we, we can connect to, some of which we're like, I could help somebody with that. Others of which we think, I wouldn't even know where to start. But the assumption there is that there's something fundamentally different going on in these issues. But all of them have arisen in people's lives because of this deceptive combination and this spiraling combination of suffering and sin. They've suffered and they've sinned and they've reached out for something other than God and actually, these issues might be a lot more similar than we tend to think of them in our, our heads. Let's look at this just for a minute. How are, what contributes to sexual issues? Well, on the one hand, suffering contributes to sexual issues. Ways that we suffer contribute 
to our sexual issues and push us towards sexual issues. We, we suffer as a result of having fallen bodies. Right? The fact that our bodies live in a world that has fallen affects our sexuality. I, I, I find it fascinating that the first, the first impact of the fall mentioned in Genesis was shameful nudity. They had to cover themselves because they were ashamed. Do you understand that the only reason that verse even makes sense is because of our sexuality? Right? Without our sexuality, you'd be like, whatever. Right? What makes it like, yeah, I'd cover up too. Right? That's our sexuality. And it's fallen. It's, it's shameful We experience shame in it even before we've committed sexual sin. We live in these fallen bodies. And these fallen bodies reside within this fallen culture. This culture that completely normalizes sexual sin. That not only normalizes sexual sin, but that promotes it. And we could talk about this for a long time, but this, this did not start today, right? The promotion of sexual sin did not start today. It didn't start today in our country. It didn't start today in our world. This has been going on for a very, very long time. It's promotion of sexual, not only that, but, but theories, just theories out there about problems, sexual problems, like the theory of addiction, that oftentimes gets slapped onto sexual problems, right? Like, I can do whatever I want, whatever I want, whatever I want, until all of a sudden, for one reason or another, it's not socially acceptable, and now I'm an addict and just need to go to recovery, right? These theories of addiction, which, which kind of give us these excuses for our sexual sin. Our culture, the, I mean, just think about the, the cultural impact of technology on our sexuality, I mean, prostitutes and pornography have been around a long time. But generations and generations ago, my eight-year-old wasn't able to stumble upon it in our kitchen. Right? The, the impact of technology, the impact of the availability of it, is, a, is an aspect of the culture and the world in which we live that we suffer as a result of. I suffer, my whole family suffers because of the billboards we drive by every day. And we can't take a different route to church because every route has them. Right? Our family suffers when, because of our culture when we just go to the beach and try to, like, surf or play in the waves. And there's ways in which many of these things have been perpetuated in the church. We also suffer because of some of the realities of the realities of church culture, of the culture of evangelicalism. We suffer because the church, for some reason, has decided to stratify sexual sin as the normal kinds and the gross kinds. And we suffer as a result of it. Sometimes making some of them seem, you know, not as bad. Sometimes causing us to not share and not open up because we know the way we're struggling is one of the gross ones. And we suffer. We suffer with fallen bodies. We suffer with a fallen culture. We suffer because of Satan. We've heard more today about Satan than I've ever heard at a conference in my life. It is so awesome. It's been so good and so biblical. I mean, so, oh my gosh, like I just, I, 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 so biblical about the impact of Satan on our lives. And we suffer in our sexuality as a result of that, as a result of the schemes of Satan. We suffer in our sexuality as a result of other sin against us. Whether it's in the, in the years when our sexuality and our sexual identity was being formed or later in life. 
We, we can suffer because of, of others' subtle non-sexual sin, which actually impacts our sexuality or our sexual development. Whether it's parental neglect and we just look for, for, um, for affection in the easiest way we can find. Or a cold and unaffectionate spouse. Or rejection by others of the opposite sex, which tempts us sexually. We, we can also suffer as others sin against us because of blatant sexual sin that impacts our sexuality. Whether it's molestation or rape or sexual harassment. Right? People can suffer in all sorts of different ways that impact deeply impact our sexuality. And so when somebody is struggling in any one of these ways, you can assume that they're coming to you as a sufferer. As somebody who is not an innocent victim, but is a victim of forces outside of themselves that are, that are contributing to and compelling them towards the sin that they are grabbing onto or the struggles that they are fighting. They come to us as strugglers. But like I said, they don't, they don't come to us as innocent strugglers. Right? They come to us as sinful strugglers. Some of that sin is in response to their suffering. Sometimes we, we, we sin in response to our suffering and it, and it's in, it manifests itself in sexual ways. Sometimes we respond to our suffering in anger. And the anger becomes our justification for our sexual sin. Or the anger becomes our justification, our explanation for our sexual struggles. And, and maybe you don't get angry. Maybe the people around you don't get angry. Maybe you just get frustrated. Right? Or annoyed. Or upset. But it's biblical anger. I'm trying to teach my kids to call it that. Really, actually, not for their sake, even primarily, but so that they can remind me. I'm just upset. Like, this man, giving your keys like the kids, giving your keys to the kids, giving your kids like the keys to your own struggles is a dangerous thing. Right? Like, hey, I struggle with being angry with you. I want you to help me with that. They love doing that. But anger takes so many different ways, and oftentimes it manifests itself in our sexuality. Another sinful way we respond to suffering is we try to pursue affection. Maybe, maybe we've suffered by not getting enough affection. Maybe we've suffered by not being cared and loved in the ways that God would have us loved by other people. But we seek that affection, and we seek it sexually. Why? Because in many contexts, it's the easiest way to get it. Especially easy for Heath, apparently. Right? Like, I mean, but, but that does a great picture of just what is so common. Looking for affection, taking advantage of the opportunities for affection. By utilizing our sexuality. Sometimes we respond to suffering with this, this uh, distorted messianic desire. And maybe it's not our own suffering. Maybe you want to, and this is especially tricky for counselors. As a pastor, maybe a, a wife whose husband is just horrible to her, right? Is just looking for somebody to talk to, looking for somebody to process through it. And I think, I, you don't need God, you need me. And it manifests sexually. Right? It doesn't manifest in sex, first of all, but it manifests sexually in flirtation. Right? In the engagement of that aspect of our humanity, which leads very quickly. Sometimes we respond to suffering by per just pursuing relief and rest. So much of pornography, so much of masturbation, so much of promiscuity, right? It's late at night because I just need an escape. I'm just looking for rest in something other than God. And so our, our sexuality and our sexual issues 
are a combination of our suffering and our sinful responses to our suffering and just our flat-out sin. Because we want something other than what God has called us to and designed us for. Ultimately, either our worship of ourselves or God is at the root of all of our thoughts and behaviors and emotions, including our sexual ones. These desires, this worship is manifest through our desires as we reach out and try to grab our desires. We see this throughout Scripture. I think these passages are in your notes, right? James 1, 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Right, what is he lured and enticed by? His desire. Second Peter 1. His, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of what? Sinful desire. Ephesians 4, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desire. And in fact, this idea of desire is even what is meant when we, when we use the term lust. In English... The, the word lust generally, and this is a, a quote from um, an article by Tim Stafford. In English, the word lust generally connotes lurid sexual fantasies, right? When you think of lust, do you lust after something? When you lust after someone, it, usually, we usually think of it as, as lurid sexual fantasies. But the same Greek word is used to render the Hebrew word translated covet, as in you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his maidservant or manservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And here we strike at the heart, he says, here we strike at the heart of the problem of lust as the Bible conceives it. We want things that don't belong to us. Leave sex out of it entirely for the moment. We're not content with what we have. We want something more. And that desire, that lust, that covet, drives us. We'd want something other than what God has given to us. And therefore, at at the root of all sexual sins is this manifestation of self-worship through the lens of our desires. And our desires combine with our sinful responses to suffering and our desires combine with the suffering we've experienced and they all fit hand and glove in driving us towards these sexual sins. Driving us towards these, these areas of, um, of sexual deviance, of sexual deviation from what God has called us to. And if you're human, you can identify with the experience of the suffering in the world and of your body and of the culture and of Satan fitting hand in glove with your sinful desires and struggling struggling, maybe even struggling in regards to your sexuality, struggling in the area of sex. And it's in this way that masturbation isn't fundamentally different from a fetish. And porn is not fundamentally different from adultery. And we see that whatever ways in which you and I have experienced and wrestled and struggled with our sexuality 
we actually can identify with those who are struggling, maybe in ways that aren't exactly like what we've experienced, but if they're sexual in nature, we know what it feels like. And this is what takes some of the, I mean, whatever the, the, the issues are, whatever the struggles are that, that you think of as way out there, right? Because there's, there's struggles and there's temptations that make sense to you, right? There's struggles and temptations that make sense to you. And then there's those struggles and temptations that you're like, I don't know how anybody could even do that. Right? I don't know how anybody could ever think that. I don't know how anybody could struggle in that way and ever desire that. And which means that in your head, what you're operating under is the assumption that there are things that the people you're ministering to are struggling with that are not common to man. That there is a temptation that has overcome them that is not common to man. When scripture tells us that there is no, no temptation that's overcome you that isn't common to man. Everything that we experience is common to our human experience. And if you've ever struggled in any way sexually, then the person in your church who has same-sex attraction and trying to figure out what to do with it. The person in your church that has a fetish with his wife's shoes and doesn't know who else to talk to. The person in your church who is addicted to pornography and you're disgusted by it. Actually has a struggle that you can't understand. Because you know what it's like for your suffering and your sin to spiral together and to cause you to be tempted. And for that temptation to manifest itself sexually. And just because the object of that temptation may be one thing or another, you know, all these different things make all the sense in the world to me because our sexual desires are just when they're looking to satisfy ourselves, we're just looking for whatever's easiest. Our flesh is just, just looks for whatever's easiest. Or whatever seems like we can connect the best. And this is why same-sex attraction makes, ought to make complete sense to us. Right? Because at different times, we've like, just what, what's like my, my selfish sexual desire like it just attaches itself to whatever seems easiest or most available or with the, the thing that will satisfy the desires and the selfish desires and the sinful desires that it's seeking to reach out and find in this thing. And we can see that while there are differences and while there are uh, especially cultural differences, that actually all of our sexual struggles are a lot more common than we tend to treat them. And that maybe the stratification of sin that can manifest itself in the church, or at the very least can manifest itself in your mind between the normal ones and the gross ones, may actually be more of a man-made barrier to actual help than a God-ordained division. So into this, into this reality of sexual issues, whatever they may be, and the suffering and the sin that contribute to them, it's into this mess that is us, (laughs) the gospel steps. And the beauty of this, the beauty of Christ, is that there's hope, right? There's hope, and there's not just hope for our sin, but there's hope for our suffering. There's hope for all of it. And there's hope for our debauchery. 
And there's hope for our temptations. And there's hope for our, for our shamefulness. And there's hope for the, the things that have divided us to, to, to be removed, that we could be united. There's hope, in the, and, and, and the gospel steps into this mess that seems just sometimes too big to even tackle. And with it, Christ declares us to be forgiven and united with him and adopted into his family. And he tells us that change, regardless of the issue, change is possible. And not only that, but for the believer in Christ, change is expected. And it can be expected. We don't have to walk into any of these areas. Sometimes when you've changed in an area, it's that evidence that makes you believe that change is possible in that area, right? So then somebody else struggles in that area, and you're like, oh, I know, change is possible. I've experienced it. This is so great. Do you see, if you've ever experienced any change in any sexual area of your life, that you can utilize that. And God wants to, through that, demonstrate to you that change is possible for whatever other sexual struggle the person you're ministering has. Change is possible. And it's expected, and we see it from the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 gets at this. He's, starting with verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Right? Such were some of you. Change is possible. Change is declared. Change is true. Such were some of you, but you were washed. And this is such an incredible truth for somebody who's struggling in their sin, because especially because, and we didn't even get into this yet, but sexual sin oftentimes compares with it a sense of identity. Right? I'm owned by this. I, 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 do, I have not committed adultery. I am an adulterer. I don't have same-sex attraction. I am a homosexual. Right? I, I, I don't... Um, I don't... Uh, struggle with pornography. I'm a porn addict. Right? This is who I am. And starting at this very, this very initial place... Paul in 1 Corinthians declares, you were washed. Not, you can be washed and we can talk about it and maybe as we work through this you might become washed. No, you were. If you believe in Christ and you have, have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you were washed. You were sanctified. Not, you can become sanctified if we work really hard at this and you keep your internet filter on. Right? No, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Romans 6 echoes it similarly. What shall we say then? In light of this, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You can declare to the sexual struggle, you are no longer enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer does dominion over him. For the death he died, he died for sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no, not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body. 
right? You have been made alive. You are dead to sin. You are no longer enslaved. So don't let it reign in your mortal bodies. Change in these areas is possible and expected. So present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. So as we listen and minister and hear, and this is a part of um, a part of why I think it's so important for this is because this perspective grants us the open door to listen and to understand. That if someone comes to us and says, I'm struggling in this way, you can listen and you can understand. You can offer them the assurance of hope. That there's hope in this struggle. There's not one verse that I can tell you and you're going to walk away and it's going to be over, but just as there's hope for each one of us, there is hope for you. You can listen without your jaw on the floor going, oh my gosh, how could anybody do that? If that's not a particular struggle of you, it's simply because of God's grace in your life. Because you and I could be there just as easily. There's nothing too disgusting for us. Out of the realm of possibility. And when we hear that, we can listen. Hear what their struggle is. Understand, instead of, the, instead of being distracted by the headline, right? I struggle with this. Whoa, like what a crazy headline. Instead of being distracted by the headline, we can listen for the content. Okay, okay, that's the headline. But, but as I listen, what are the ways that you're suffering that you have suffered, that have contributed to this struggle in your life? And how does God want to declare his redemption of those, that suffering? What are some of the ways that you're sin- what are some of the desires that get fulfilled through this sin in your life? What are the things you're chasing after? And then we get to bring the gospel to bear. We get to bring the gospel to bear in, into our suffering. There's a whole host of different passages, but let's just look at one. First Peter 1, verses 3 through 7. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold and perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think one of the greatest ways that the power of the gospel gets muted in our world is that we're, we're hesitant to call suffering suffering. We're hesitant to call trials trials. We think, oh, Peter was talking to the the. The, the, the church when they were being persecuted and they were being you know there was somebody knocking on their door and they wanted to kill that's a trial he's not talking to people like me he's not talking about the trials of driving past the billboard every day he's not talking about the trials of what pops up on my computer he's not talking about the, 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 the trials of, of, the, of the, the, the relationship of somebody who's pursuing me with, inappropriately but he is. The various multicolored trials. He says all of this is suffering. And you experience it every single day. And when we don't call a spade a spade, we don't get the opportunity to see and to recognize God's redemption of it. To recognize what we can. Oftentimes we... When we don't realize we're suffering, we look for hope in, in something else. 
Like, I'm not suffering. What we usually mean by that is some form of my financial state is enough. My relationships are enough. I'm not, I mean, people out there are really suffering. I'm not suffering. As if the blessings we got in our life negate the fact that anything negative or bad might actually be impacting us. But it is. Every day. And God wants us to see these things as trials. He wants us to recognize the, them as, as real. Not so that we can, commit, can develop this victim mentality, but so that we can look at it and say, in the midst of many trials, I have something to rejoice in. And it's the fact that according to his great mercy, he's caused me to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. A hope that, that, that is bigger than these trials. And it's not all the different ways that I'm blessed in this life. It's this eternal promise. This inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for me. I can resist the temptations of what gets thrown at me all the time because I have an inheritance that's so much greater than a one-night stand. That's so much greater than uh, an evening absorbed in pornography. That's so much greater than an adulterous relationship. That's so much greater than what the world promises. It's this inheritance. And the ways that I'm, when I'm suffering, God wants to call me. He wants to redeem that suffering and use it to push me towards him. To create hope and strengthen and gird me up. As he talks about in Romans chapter 5, where suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Satan means the billboard I drive by every day. Literally, our church in LA, there's like two ways you can get at it, right? You can come this way down the street or you can come the other way down the street, right? You cannot get to the church by going any other way other than like down these two ways down the street. And on both sides are, um, are built billboards for uh, an adult shop in town. And God says, Satan means that for evil. He plans it for evil and he thinks it'll work. But I want to use it to produce endurance in my children. I want that endurance to grow in character and I want it to produce hope. That I am real and that my spirit is powerful and that I'm working and that I'm greater and bigger than any temptation or suffering that you experience. No matter how big... Or how small. The gospel redeems and gives us hope in the midst of our suffering and it gives us hope in the midst of our sin. Just like we've been talking about all day. It gives us hope in the midst of our sin. Colossians is just another great example of this. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of them. Every single sexual trespass in your life, God has forgiven it. Every single sexual trespass in the life of your counselee, if they have reached out to God for forgiveness, he has declared it to be true. It is forgiven Forgive us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing our sexual sin to the cross. Praise him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He put the rulers and authorities in this world. The demonic authorities, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. What does this passage declare about the sexual struggler? The Christian who's a sexual struggler, this declares that it is all forgiven. That even when they come to you and their binge on pornography last night, it's forgiven. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been washed clean. 
They've been declared to be forgiven, and they need desperately. All of us need a reminder because our sexual sin affects us so intimately, so shamefully. We need a a constant reminder of the declaration and the truth of the gospel. We can't jump to, okay, let's set up the internet filter and let's make sure this happens. And we can't set up the accountability before we say stop. And let me remind you again, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And he goes on in chapter 3 of Colossians, And if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Ephesians calls this, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put off, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Set your mind on these truths, what is true about who you are in Christ. Romans says the same thing, right? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By internet software? No, I love internet software. I have it on every computer in our house, okay? I'm not bagging on internet software. But it is not my hope. It's not even my hope for my children. My hope for all of us is remind, or the renewal of our mind and what Christ declares to be true about those who are his. Would be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put to death then, therefore, in light of, of what he's done and the declaration of what he's done, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And this is where we get three instructions. And I'm going to just leave us with this. Three practical instructions for addressing sin in the sexual struggler. After remind, being reminded of the truth of God, well, the first is set your mind on the things that are above, being reminded of the truth of God. The second is put to death what's earthly in you. Put to death through confession your idolatry, your coveting, your lust of the flesh, the desires. Put them to death. This is where we can say, look at what God has done for you. Now he calls you to put to death these deeds. We don't want to manage them. We don't want to just get by with them. We don't want to decrease daily porn use to monthly porn use. We want to put it to death. Put to death what is earthly in you and put on Christ-likeness. Put on Christ-likeness in your worship. Put on Christ-likeness in your love. Put on Christ-likeness in your behavior and your thoughts and your emotions. He says, you know, God's shown the holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, was a complaint against another, forgiving each other. I oftentimes get this question. So our, our church is about half of our church is married, the other half is single. And repentance from sexual sin does not just look like don't do that bad thing. Repentance from sexual sin is not just putting off the sin. It's putting on Christ-likeness. It's putting on, if you're married, it means putting on God-glorifying sexual activity in your marriage. Exchanging porn for you using your spouse selfishly is not repentance. But manifesting love for your spouse is repentance. I I get asked a lot by single people in our church, what should I put on? (laughs) Right? I feel like I, I, I have this sexual area of my life. Like, what am I supposed to put? If I have to put off this, what am I supposed to put on? And they usually say a little bit frustratedly. The problem is they're trying to stay within the category of their, of their sexual activity. But what are you supposed to put off? If the put off is self-love, right? Self-love through pornography, self-love through masturbation, self-love through, um, through premarital sex, what are you supposed to put on? Love of God and love for others. You can manifest repentance through loving people of the opposite sex, of the same sex, the way God's called you to love them. Loving them well, serving them, caring for them. This is what repentance of sexual sin looks like. Putting off, putting to death the sin and putting on Christ-likeness, love. So I think that's all of our time. Let me, let me pray and close this up.
Our Heavenly Father, we recognize, Lord, that um, our sexuality is just another one of the battlegrounds in our lives and our hearts for each one of us, God. None of us are pure sexually, Lord. None of us have perfected sexuality, Lord. None of us have achieved Lord. We all fall short. We all are desperately in need of your grace and your forgiveness. And we live in a world who, of people who experience that same fallenness. God, help us to be people who can love and care for and minister to others well, winsomely, wisely, and with a deep understanding and appreciation for how the truth of the gospel deeply impacts all of the different sexual issues that are so rampant in our world and in our churches. Help us and give us wisdom as we do. In Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.